About four years ago, I stopped. I stopped my career path. I stopped thinking about how I was going to make money, make a living. I accepted the vulnerable position of relying solely on my spouse for financial resources. I reflected very deeply the kind of privilege I had in being able to even make that kind of choice. But this really wasn't a choice for me. It had become a necessity. For more than 15 years, I thought I should be a strong feminist and climb that corporate ladder. I worked in marketing and communications, mostly for technology companies. After my fourth layoff, I opted for independence. I would freelance and direct my way. I was completely in charge. But underneath all of that, underneath those choices, I was still unhappy. I was adrift. I felt stagnant. I had no energy for what I was doing. So I stopped. I took a time out. And I turned to writing. I have been an on-again and off-again writer for years. I have taken dozens of classes at The Loft, our amazing literary center here in the Twin Cities. I do a lot of dreaming about writing, but not um, quite a lot of doing, actually doing of the writing. But seeking guidance in my life, I decided to sign up for two back-to-back -back online writing courses. These were soul writing courses, S-O-U-L, soul writing courses led by Janet Connor. These were a little new agey, a little spiritual, a little mishmash of a whole lot of things. But for four months, four months, I actually uh, attended the weekly teleconferences, I followed all of the workbook exercises, and most importantly, I wrote every day. I wrote for four months. And each day when I would do these soul writing sessions, I would start it out with a ritual. I lit a candle. I burned a little sage to purify the air around me and just because the smell of burning sage is quite delicious. And then with pen in hand and notebook open, even though I'm a techie girl, there's something about holding a pen and having that smooth paper there in front of you. I would hold my pen and I would open my notebook and I would recite a short prayer that I had created following the course instructions because I do as I'm told and I was told to write a short prayer. And the prayer that I said before putting pen to notebook was great spirit, let me lean on you let me release to you this thought in my heart. Let me turn it into holy incense, ash. Let it become beautiful. In this I pray. Amen. And then I just started writing. I wrote to make room. I wrote to free myself from the box I had put myself in. 
I wrote to uncover new possibilities and new directions, to discover new thoughts and new ways that I wanted to be in this world. I wrote furiously fast. I wrote as fast as I possibly could. I was trying to overcome the fear, my internal sensor, the anxiety that was churning inside my gut. I wrote so fast that I really stopped forming letters, even words, punctuation went out the window. The lines in my journal were really just scribbles after a while, literally scribbles. When I look back in the journals, um, I just can't make out hardly anything that I wrote. It's all just wiggly lines. But in my heart and in my soul, I knew what those scribbles said. They came from a voice, this still, small voice, deep, deep inside me. This voice was filled with truth. This voice was truth. It was wisdom because it was me. And what I heard and what came out on those pages terrified me. Instead of standing still in the metaphorical forest, I ran crashing and screaming through the trees. Among all those scribbled questions and answered, I wrote in big clear, all clap, cap letters, no, this can't be it, this can't be for me. I wrote this word no with like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of O's and all these exclamation marks. That came very, very clear through all of those scribbles. Yet that, that voice, that mysterious, deep inside of me voice kept whispering this foreign word, ministry. And I just kind of kept saying no. I was not prepared for this disruption in my life. Being a minister is not cool. Sorry, Jan, it's just really not. (laughs) I didn't want to be lumped into those kinds of ministers, you know, those conservative uh, ministers. I just did not want to be lumped into that. I am, I'm cool. I am a hip, creative person. So in my journal, I just kept saying, no, 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 shush, I don't want to hear you. But through all this uncertainty and doubt and resistance, I stood still. The forest breathed, and I listened. I found my tree. I found my branch. I wasn't lost anymore. And it makes me wonder if this is what happens when we make room for vulnerability, when we lean on Faith. So I am just starting to learn about the Bhagavad Gita, but I think it can offer a helpful perspective to these thoughts. The Bhagavad Gita is an ancient Hindu text, and it was written sometime between 200 and 500 BCE. It tells the story of the warrior Arjuna and his divine mentor, Krishna. The meanings and views of this wisdom story vary considerably, but I want to share just a few things that I learned from a person named Stephen Cope, who I know through Kripalu, which is a yoga center in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. 
According to Cope, the yogic tradition insists that everyone, every single person, has a unique vocation called their dharma. This word dharma has lots of meanings, and it could include path or teachings or law. But above all, whatever you might think about dharma, it means truth. The Bhagavad Gita is the great scripture on dharma, and it tells how Krishna taught the greatest warrior of his time to embrace his sacred vocation. So when you think of sacred vocation, I want you to think about it in the most expansive, broadest sense. This is not a special calling limited to a holy few. It is living out the holiness of truth, your truth. As Krishna told our warrior, it is better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of someone else. And I think a great example you might know is Henry David Thoreau. Plus, he also happens to have been a student of the Bhagavad Gita, so it fits well. As a young man, Thoreau wanted to make his name for himself in the literary scene of New York City. So this was the time of the mid-1800s, and writers at this time, they sparkled. They were big, sparkly people. They were bright, and they were shiny, and they had all of this big city style. Thoreau wasn't that kind of guy. He was this nature lover. He was somewhat ordinary. He's been called ugly. He was a bit rustic. In a year of trying to make it big, he only published one slim review in that year of living in New York. Faced with the pain of rejection and longing for the woods back home in Concord, Thoreau, while he was still living in New York, wrote about the first sparrow in spring, which today is one of the most famous passages in his book, Walden. When Thoreau finally arrived back home, he wrote, Be humbly who you are. And that's how he spent the rest of his life. Thoreau paid attention to who he was. Stephen Cope writes that when we have to try on various versions of ourselves to see how they fit. In any quest for dharma, there will be inevitably lots and lots of trying on outfits. Cope said that most people are already living very close to their dharma, within spitting range. That's how close we are. The problem, though, is that as close as we are to the deepest mysteries of dharma, we know very little about it. We don't name it. We don't own it. We don't live it intentionally. Our own sacred calling is hiding in plain sight, and we just keep missing it. Cope says that when it comes to dharma, missing by an inch is as good as missing by a mile. Aim is everything. Another way of looking at this comes from the English poet David White. And one of White's co-workers said, I turned my face for a moment and it became my life. And that's really one of the greatest teachings from the Bhagavad Gita as I'm discovering it. Actions taking in the service of our sacred calling, our vocation, 
are what leads to freedom and fulfillment. By acting through Dharma, we can relieve suffering for ourselves. Our eyes shine. We have faith. We have hope. And when we relieve the suffering in ourselves, we are able to relieve the suffering in others. We must first look to ourselves, and then we can go out in the world and relieve the suffering of others. But again, it comes down to aim. Aim is everything when one is living one's dharma. In my own life, I've been realizing how important it is to pay attention to this, to take the time to listen and adjust my aim, to look at the outfits that I'm trying on to make sure that they really fit. I heard this call to ministry, but after two years of seminary, I questioned whether I was still lost. This leap toward a new vocation had felt like jumping a chasm. I had my life before, I have my life now, and I had this attitude that these two sides will never meet. I had been like that warrior, like Arjuna. This battle had been with myself. And I thought I had to follow this completely new path. I, I know the job of being a minister is quite different from my past, but as I've looked very closely at this concept of aim, I realized that doing ministry is where I need to focus. When I listen to my deepest truths, when I make room for my dharma, the chasm that I had imagined that I had built up in myself had disappeared. This focus, this readjustment of my aim helped me see that a raven is a raven, a wren is a wren. I am doing ministry. I am a minister. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna teaches that a life of certitude is really possible. But the key to living a life true to dharma, explains Stephen Cope, is a complete understanding of and respect for doubt. The only way to get to certitude is to look more and more deeply into our doubt, to shine a light in the dark, dark corners of the way we divide ourselves. Living as our true Integrated selves is a continual act of paying attention. We must look at our thoughts, our words, and our actions and make sure that they are in alignment. We have to pay attention to those questions that appear to the doubts that arise. We need to be dedicated to that deep listening. For me, I listen by writing, and by sinking into poetry. For you, perhaps it's painting, or dancing, or knitting, or meditating, or walking the beautiful labyrinth that you have downstairs in the social hall. What's most important, though, is that we need to be gentle with ourselves. Krishna teaches that we are what we seek. 
In Hinduism, the Sanskrit phrase, which I might not be pronouncing correctly, is tatvan asi, which roughly translates as thou art that. What we are looking for as we navigate these twists and turns in our life is already inside. Thou art that. This means that when circumstances in life get in the way, we are not really lost. We may be hurting, certainly. We may be anxious, distracted, full of doubts. We may feel lost, but we are not. So when you are able, when those moments are there in front of you, stand still. Be still. The forest knows where you are. You just must let it find you. May it be so. And amen.